Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Open with me, if you would, in your Bible to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Acts chapter 3. Then hold your place there and turn back to Acts chapter 2. Hallelujah. We'll start with Acts chapter 2 first. Hallelujah. Verse 14 says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah. And then go over to the third chapter. Verse 19 says, repent there and be, therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing. As I pointed out, one translation, I think it's the Weymouth translation, says seasons of revival. So that seasons of revival, times of revival may come from the presence of the Lord and that he might send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your holy written word. Glory to God. We thank you, Father, for the last days. We thank you, Father, for the last great revival. We thank you, Father, that we are in the time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the last days. Glory to God. You said you would pour your spirit out upon all flesh. Glory to God. We thank you, Father, that we're living in these days. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. The times in which we live are the times of which Joel the prophet spoke. He spoke of these times. Glory to God. And we thank you, Father, that we are honored and privileged to live in these last days and to be a part of this last great revival, this last great move and outpouring of the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. The last days, wonderful days for the church, perilous days and times for the world, but glorious days for the church. Glory to God. We thank you for it, Father. We thank you, Father, that all throughout the times of the last days, there will be times of refreshing, times and seasons of revival. Glory to God. And we're in a season of revival. We're in a time of refreshing. Glory to God. And we thank you for it, Father. And Father, we're looking forward to the fullness of this time, the fullness of the outpouring of the Spirit. We're looking, Father, for the times of restoration of all things, Glory to God, which have been spoken by the mouth of all of your holy prophets since the world began. Glory to God. And we thank you, Father, that we are rapidly advancing toward the times of restoration of all things. Glory to God. Thank you for it, Father. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
Glory to God. 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 Hallelujah. Before Jesus returns, according to this scripture, it says heaven must receive until Jesus has gone into heaven. He was raised from the dead. He was he ascended into heaven. And it says whom heaven has received until the times of restoration of all things. That's all things concerning the church. If you go back and look at this in its context, if you go back to verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his holy prophets that the Christ would fulfill. So it's talking about all things spoken by all the holy prophets concerning Christ. Well, that would be concerning his church too. Amen. Glory to God. And so before he returns, times of restoration, the times of restoration of all things, everything that's ever been deposited in the church, everything that's ever been made available to the church, everything that is in the plan of God for the church has to be restored in these last days. Glory to God, the times of restoration of all things, <laughs> these are great times. Woo! My, 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 the days ahead. Glory to God. If we could just see, if we could just see just a glimpse into the not, not too distant future, in the days ahead, we would be amazed. Glory to God of all that is happening and will happen. Praise God. There's more happening now than we realize. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. And so revival, we're in revival. Revival is underway. And yet revival must be sustained. Revival must be sustained. Revival must be advanced. It must be moved forward toward its ultimate goal and its ultimate manifestation. Amen. And in order for that to happen, there, there has to be praying. We have to learn in these last days about praying and how to pray in and give birth to the fullness of the plan of God that he has for us. Amen. And so on Sunday last week, I talked Sunday morning and Sunday night, and just gave an introduction just to kind of bring us back up to, uh, to uh, where we, some, just understanding some things that we've already said about revival. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are concerned about what's happening in the world and, you know, what, uh, how the world is going and, and, you know, so forth, what the devil's doing. Well, praise God, that's not our job to be concerned about what the devil's doing. Amen. Our focus is on what the Lord's doing. Amen. Amen. Go with me over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth. Well, anybody that knows anything about salt knows that particularly in biblical times, salt had two purposes, two fundamental purposes. We use one of them today far more than the other. But one, it had to do with flavoring. And of course, we still use salt that way. And secondly, it was largely used as a, a, a source of preservation of uh, meats and so forth. It was considered a preservative. With the advancement of, of modern refrigeration and so forth, we don't see a lot of that in our uh, in developed worlds, but in undeveloped countries and parts of the world, salt is still used that way as a preservative. And, and, uh, and that's what Jesus was talking about here. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But then he said, if the salt loses its flavor, if it goes flat, if it loses its power, how shall it be seasoned? 
it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot by men. Then he went on to say, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus is telling us that we are two things. We are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. When you look at the condition the world is in and the advancement in uh, the kingdom of darkness, how the world is growing darker and darker, and it is. Men are growing more and more wicked, they are. We look at all of these things and uh, the church has some responsibility here. I said the church has some responsibility. Now go with me, hold your place here and go with me over to Second uh, Timothy. Look at Second Timothy and look at the third chapter. Verse one says, know this, that in the last days, perilous times, stressful times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, from such people turn away. Now he's telling us that in the last days, this is the way men will go. Amen. If you drop on down to verse 13, it says, evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now that's, that's uh, given by the Spirit of God a prediction concerning the last days and the latter part of the last days and we're certainly seeing this come to pass. So my comment about the church having responsibility has to be tempered with this other side. The church has some responsibility in that we have not been salt and light like we should have. I said the church has some responsibility in that we have not been salt and light like we should have, but there's some balance to that. You know, everything, it, it, there's, there, there, are, there are always more than one side to a, to a topic. It's a shame that some people in studying and preaching the Bible only are able to see one side of an issue. And it's just like the, the, the old uh, illustration of a mountain. A mountain has more than one side and one side of the mountain, if you look at a mountain from one side and you, and you wanted to describe what the mountain looked to someone, you would describe it some way. Somebody on the other side of the mountain looking at the same mountain would describe it completely different. They'd say, no, that's not what that mountain looks like. It looks like this and it looked completely different. Well, it's the same mountain and there are actually more than two sides to it. Isn't that right? Depends on where you're, where you're standing. And when it comes to Bible topics, there are more than one way, uh, there are more than, than, than one way to look at a topic and to describe it, and we have to look at all of them. And so when it comes to the last days and what we're seeing going on in the world, it, there's, there are two parts to this. Part of it, part of what we see happening in our own nation is because the church has not been salt and light. Not like we should. Amen. The church has, 
uh, when I say the church, you know, the church is just made up of believers. Amen. And the, and the majority of Christians for too long, for so many years now, have been more interested in how they appear to the world, what kind of recognition they get from the world. We want to look like the world, act like the world, be esteemed by the world. We don't want anybody to think we're narrow-minded or out of fashion or old-fashioned or, or not with the times. And so we try to be like them. We try to act like them. And in the process, we've allowed them to keep us quiet for fear of sounding uh, prejudiced or for fear of sounding religious or for fear of sounding judgmental or for fear of sounding, sounding uh, 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 out of step with the times. Well, you might as well say amen. And we've not been the salt and the light that we should have been. And we, we, are, we have some responsibility and we have to acknowledge that. He said the salt can lose its saltiness. Salt can lose its saltiness. And he says if that happens, it becomes good for nothing. I think there's, there is an argument to be made that in America... The church has, has, in a large measure, lost its saltiness. What, what did it say would happen when the salt loses its, its flavor? It's good for nothing, and what happens? Huh? It's thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. There are a lot of people today that are emboldened uh, against the church, and it's because a compromised worldly backslidden church it, it never has been in history never has been a bold witness for Christ never has been a, a church that affected the world amen well praise the Lord that's the truth and so part of this is having to do with the times in which we live and the other part has to do with, with, with the, the condition of the church. I'm far more concerned with the condition of the church than I am the condition of the world. Amen. I, I'm far more interested in revival in the church than I am trying to correct the world. Amen. See, it, when the church is in revival, it becomes salty again. Yeah. And when the church is on fire, when the church is, is moving with the power of the Holy Spirit, when the church is boldly declaring the word of God, speaking fearlessly in, in times of darkness, letting our light shine, then the church becomes effective. Now we know that the last days will still be characterized by men growing worse and worse, being deceived and deceiving. We know that'll happen. And so let us not, let us not kid ourselves in thinking that that's not gonna happen. It will continue to happen. But at the same time, there is a harvest to be reaped and it will be reaped by a church that has a bold, powerful, spirit-filled witness and is being salt and light. Amen. The church has failed to exercise, we've failed to exercise our God-given authority. Amen. Go with me over to uh, Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Hallelujah. Matthew 16. Verse 18, and I say unto you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church has been vilified, marginalized, criticized, pronounced dead on arrival over and over and over through the centuries. And guess what? 
it's not going away. Amen. You can't destroy the church because the church is the body of Christ. Amen. And he said, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hallelujah. But there's something connected with that. How is it that the church will prevail over the forces of darkness? I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We have a whole lot more authority here than we've ever exercised. We have more authority here than we have ever understood and realized. And before the Lord Jesus returns, the church must lay hold of its authority. The church must rise up and understand the authority that's been given to it to bind and loose. There are far too many things that happen in this world that shouldn't happen. Amen. There are things that happen in our nation that shouldn't happen with as many Christians, with as many believers as we have. Because, you know, the, the church has to be revived. I tell you, a church that's not revived is, is backslidden. You're either, you're either backslidden or you're in revival. Amen. You're either backslidden or you're in revival. It went over real big. Amen. Glory to God. When you have so much of the church agreeing with the world, agreeing with the things of the world, agreeing with the mandates and decisions of the world, embracing the world, apologizing for the world, amen, giving excuses for the world, that's just a backslidden church. Amen. And, and that's not a church that knows anything about binding and loosing, I can tell you that. But glory to God, the light is coming. Amen. And so in times of decline, God sends revival. That's why revivals come, because the church always backslides. It's good news. No, that's, that's just a fact. If you look at Israel's history, they continually backslid and God had to raise someone up, a prophet or someone to call them back, to get them back in line, to get them restored and back to a place where they should be. And they would, and they would uh, follow him again for a while and then they would backslide. Jeremiah talked about the perpetual backslidings of Jerusalem. He said, you are perpetually backslidden. Amen. Hosea talked about the church or, or, the, or, the, or the nation of Israel, uh, he said, you are bent on backsliding. Well, we, we look at Israel and shake our head and say, my, 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 it's terrible. But the church has done the same thing over the centuries. And, uh, and so in times of decline, times of apostasy, God sends revival to stir the church back up. Amen, get us back on track. And, and as we approach the end of the age, certainly, there's a revival. Amen. And, uh, and so God always raises up a remnant. God always raises up a remnant. Out of, out of a backslidden nation, God would always raise somebody up to pray. He would always, always raise somebody up as a witness. And they would, they would arise as God's uh, remnant in that day and God would put the responsibility of restoring Israel on the shoulders of that remnant and they would call the nation back to obedience well the same thing happens in the church God always raises up a remnant there is a remnant church that is not backslidden glory to God that, is, that has not compromised and that will not go the way of the world Amen, that, that is hungry for all that God has and is willing to do whatever is necessary to see the plan of God completed, amen? Go with me over to Daniel. Let's look at how God used Daniel. 
In the Old Testament, of course, the prophet Daniel was just a young man, teenager, when he and others were uh, led into captivity when Israel fell and went into the, to Babylonian captivity. And Israel went into Babylonian captivity because of their disobedience. The Lord told them ahead of time, over and over and over again, if you go and begin to serve other gods, if you turn your back on the commandments and stop worshiping me and stop obeying my word, he said, you will be driven and taken captive by the nations of the world. And that happened in young Daniel's time and he was one of the young men that were uh, taken captive and uh, brought to Babylon. And uh, we know the story of Daniel. All the little children know the different things that Daniel did. He was a man of, of uh, no compromise. He was a man of integrity. He was a man who stood true to his faith in God and would not bow. He would not conform. Amen. God promoted him. God delivered him. And God used him. In, in an ungodly nation with an ungodly king, God promoted Daniel because he would not compromise. Did, did uh, the, the sinners of his day, did they attack him? Absolutely. Did, was he forced and, and was, he, was he faced with terrible choices? Yes, he was. But he stood true to God and God delivered him. Amen. And God used that and turned that to make him an even greater witness in the kingdom. Amen. Well, in, in verse number one of chapter nine, says in the first year of, of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was the king of, of the realm of the, of the first year of Darius, excuse me, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was of the king of, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Israel. The prophet Jeremiah had given a, a time uh, and he said that because Israel had not obeyed God, and not followed according to the law concerning the land of different things, that the land of Israel would be desolate for 70 years. And that at that time, God would restore the people. Well, Daniel was reading, and when he was reading the prophet uh, Jeremiah, he read about these 70 years. Now, at the time of Darius, and at the time that Daniel read this, it had been approximately 67 years after the, uh, the uh, uh, fall of Jerusalem. So Daniel is not a young man anymore. He's an older man. And he realized that the time for Jerusalem uh, and for Israel to be restored to the land was drawing near because the prophet said it would be 70 years and now it's been 60, 67 years. And so... It says in verse three, then he, he said, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. In other words, Daniel prayed. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, oh Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. 
O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness because we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. And so he goes on and on and on and, and he is repenting before the Lord on behalf of the nation of Israel and the people of Jerusalem. And he's saying, we have sinned. Now it's interesting that Daniel, you wouldn't think of Daniel as someone who would fall into that category of someone that had sinned and transgressed and, and, uh, and done wickedly. In fact, we see just the opposite is true. We see that Daniel was a man that would not compromise, that stayed true to the, to the, to the law and to the commandments and to the word of God at, at great peril, at great risk of life. He wouldn't bow. Amen. And yet we find him here confessing the sins of the people as though they were his own. Verse 20 says, And while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Then he talked about being visited while this was happening. The angel Gabriel appeared to him. But he was making confession. God always raises up a remnant church to stand in the, in the gap. See, God has a plan, but he has to have somebody to lay hold of it. Even though God said at the, at the end of 70 years the people would return to the land, it wasn't just gonna happen because God said it. I said it wasn't gonna happen just, be God, just because God said it. God had to find somebody that would agree with it and that would begin to call on his name, that would begin to pray about it and present petitions before the Lord. God had to have somebody. And he raised up Daniel. Now God no doubt stirred Daniel's heart. But at the same time, Daniel stirred himself up. He said, what did it say in verse three? Then I set my face toward the Lord God. In other words, he did it. God no doubt stirred him up to do it, but then he stirred himself up. He took, he took account of what was going on and he said, my God, something has to be done. And he realized that, that if anybody's gonna change, it's gonna have to be God's people because God's not gonna change. And if we're gonna have the plan of God, if we're gonna have the fulfillment of what God has said, we're gonna have to change. He was one voice. And God used that one voice. God used that one man who would stand and pray and make intercession and supplication for the people of his day. Glory to God. God didn't make him do it. He stirred himself up. Amen. I want to read to you something that Dad Hagen wrote in his book, The Art of, of, of Intercession. Then later he came out and he, he revised the book and called it The Art of Prayer. He said, in the winter of 1942 and 1943, I found myself taken up with a desire for God to move. I did not conjure it up. It was put there, no doubt, by God. You see what is happening in the move of the Spirit of God revivals and so forth doesn't come as the result of somebody's praying yesterday or even last week. It is the result of the prayers of yesteryear. That winter of 1942 and 43, I was the pastor of a church in East Texas when I found myself so taken up and so burdened praying along certain lines. During those war years, it seemed as though many of our churches dried up People were busy going to war or working in war plants and so forth. In our Pentecostal churches, we had an abundance of tongues and interpretation, but seldom, if ever, did we see any other gifts or manifestations of the Spirit. I found myself almost unconsciously praying, Dear Lord, may the more mighty gifts and manifestations of the Spirit come into manifestation and operation. The gift of special faith, the working of miracles, the gifts of healings. 
I was so taken up with that, I would wake up in the living room on my knees at three or four o'clock in the morning praying that. Night after night, it was a common occurrence. Many times I would have been awakened earlier in the night. I'd get up out of bed and out of the bedroom so I wouldn't disturb my wife. I'd do a lot of praying quietly and privately, but I couldn't be quiet about this. It seemed as if I was going to burst. But other times I wouldn't remember getting up. I would come awake and say to myself, how did I get here? I would wake up and find myself unconsciously praying, may the greater, more mighty manifestations of your spirit come into operation. Then on the 23rd day of February, 1943, after praying that day for four hours and 45 minutes, God began to say something to me. I got my pencil and wrote it down. He said, at the close of World War II, there will come a revival of divine healing to America. That was more than two years before the war was over. The war wasn't over until August 1945. This, was, this happened in, in February 1943. 19 months later, in September of 1944, I was speaking at a Christ Ambassadors rally for the Assemblies of God. That was a youth rally. I started out on another subject, but because this was burning inside me, I got over on this subject and told what the Lord had said to me. I said, I want to give you a preview of what is happening or a preview of what is going to happen when the war is over. There is coming a revival of divine healing to America. When I said that, the power of God fell on that crowd. Every minister, just like somebody told them to, and I didn't, got up and ran to the altar. Every person hit the floor. I had never seen such a sight in my life. That Thank God for the spirit of God. Thank God for prayer. That revival of divine healing came. It started in 1947. But notice, but it didn't come because somebody had prayed the week before in 1947. It came because people, not just me, but others were praying back in 1943. I tell you what, it's important. The time we spend in prayer is important. Do not think that because we've been in prayer for a long time that God's not doing anything. Amen. When I was praying about it, it was, it was a consuming desire. I did not care or even suspect that God would use me in it. I didn't really even want him to use me. It would suit me just fine if I was behind the scenes where I could pray and no one ever saw me. God carries out his will upon the earth through the church. What if people had not responded to that burden? Where did it come from anyhow? Did we conjure it up ourselves? No, God laid it on our hearts. It was a consuming desire. But what if we hadn't responded? We didn't have to, we're not robots. God doesn't make us do anything. We have a will of our own. We have a will to respond. We have to will to respond to the spirit of God. God's spirit doesn't use force. If he did, he'd make everybody get saved today and we go into the, into the millennium tomorrow. It is the devil that, and demons that drive and force and make people. The Holy Spirit leads and guides. He will give a gentle push. Be determined to respond to the spirit of God. Respond to those urges to pray. Sometimes there is a leading. Sometimes there is a burden. Become sensitive to him. Sometimes we're insensitive to what he's saying in our spirits because we live too much in the mental realm and we pass these things by. Well, that's the truth, isn't it? Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Thank you, Father. Talking about how the Holy Spirit moved on that crowd that night when he was preaching and everybody uh, began to pray. He said it, it uh, came in like a, sort of like a wind blew through. It says the Spirit of God moved in like a wind and every minister in the room ran down the aisle and fell on the altar. Everyone else hit the floor and, and everyone started praying. I didn't tell them to do that. I was right in the middle of my sermon. But when I looked around and saw everybody on the floor, 
I just got down on the floor and prayed with them. We prayed up a storm for a good while. When, I finally got, when we finally got through praying, I just picked up where I'd finished or where I'd left off and finished my sermon. We need those kinds of services where God's power manifests while the preacher is preaching. If today's spirit-filled believers would start believing God for the move of his spirit and pray in the Holy Ghost the way Pentecostal believers did in those days, the same mighty power would be in manifestation today as it was then. That Holy Ghost power may fall like rain. It may move in like a cloud or it might blow through like a wind and sweep everyone off the pews onto the floor. Like, just like it did in that meeting in 1974 when God confirmed the word he had given to me. Well, what he's saying is that uh, it didn't happen. That, that revival, that major revival of God came because people prayed. And it wouldn't have come if people hadn't prayed. And he said, uh, we didn't have to pray. God didn't make us pray. We're not robots. We have, to, we have to will to respond to the Spirit of God. And that's why prayer is so important in, uh, in this move of God. Prayer is the key. Prayer is the key. Uh, there's, no other, there's no other way you can say it. But that the plan of God... And the revival and the fulfillment of God's plan for the church age is going to come to pass when the church prays like it must pray. Amen. And we're getting a hold of this message. And we are awakening ourselves to prayer. And what has happened in this church is, is happening more and more. I had a pastor just uh, uh, last week, he texted me and said, tell me more about how you got your church to pray. I just, because when I was in California, I didn't give a lot of details. I just said, in 2007, God stirred up a, a move of prayer in my church and, and, the, and the Lord gave me a plan. And, uh, and I said, uh, the Lord sort of tricked us. In that, you know, and I, that I didn't go into any detail about it. I said, I, I'm not going to give you the detail. God give you your own plan. Well, this pastor that was in attendance, he contacted me last week. He said, I want to know what your plan was. And I said, well, you know, God, God led us. God gave me a plan for us to pray for 10 days. And I said, I asked everybody that was uh, uh, in the church who would participate. Not everybody did, but we had a good, strong participation. And I said, everybody who would pray, who would commit to pray one hour a day for 10 days. I said, I found out that people will stand on their head for an hour a day if they think the reward is big enough and they think they won't have to do it longer than 10 days. <laughs> and, uh, and so at the end of the 10 days, by the time that 10th day come around, something had happened. Something had happened. I had more than one, I mean, several people. Pastor, can we keep this up? We don't want to stop. The 10 days are over. We don't, we, we don't want to stop. Well, I realized that we would not be able to sustain that same uh, hour a day for 10 days that, that we, we needed to do something that was more in the, in, in the scope of, of what God could do among us. And I said, well, let's just bring all that interest in, in prayer and let's bring it in on Monday night and let's pray. And I told this pastor that was eight years ago. And, and, the, and the revival of prayer is still going strong in our church. And that is what has produced this revival. Uh, this revival in our church is a result of that move of God in prayer. But it's also stirring up a greater understanding of prayer. I mean, we, we had a real move of God where prayer was concerned. And it changed our church. If you just think back, back a few years before 2007, I mean, you know, I, I told the, the uh, congregation out there, I said, we had a great church. Don't misunderstand me. We had a good church. Good things were happening. We had good services. We had times where the glory of God was in, in manifestation. We had, we had wonderful services and, and good results and people were growing in faith and, and, and living for God. We had a good church. Wasn't anything wrong with our church, but we weren't a praying church. So we weren't. 
by no stretch of the imagination prior to 2007 could Impact Family Church have been called a praying church. We weren't. And it wasn't until I, I realized that and came to terms with it and actually said that. I actually said that in a message. It, it actually came out of my mouth. I was standing right, I remember, I don't remember when it was, but I remember doing it. And I was looking right over here and I said, by no stretch of the imagination is Impact Family Church a praying church. And I remember the impact it made on people. They went kind of. But they had to agree we weren't. And, and God raised up uh, an, uh, an understanding and, a, and an, uh, uh, an interest and a spirit of prayer in the church. And it changed our church. But then we've changed again. Yeah, we've gone to another level just this year in revival and that's a result of praying. But we, we in the last couple of years, we turned our focus away from just what God was doing here and that's what he said in the beginning. Pray about this church and the, and the uh, vision of this church. That's exactly the plan he gave us and we stuck to it. I tell you what, if God gives me a plan, I'm gonna stick to it. And, and you know, like they say, until the cows come home, I'm just gonna stick to it. And if they're not home yet, then I'm just gonna keep on doing it. Amen. But then in 2013, the Lord gave us a revelation concerning a visitation that was coming to our nation. Remember that? That was in, in 2013. And we began, to sh we began to shift in our praying. We began to pray along that line. We began to pray more and more about that visitation. I, I, I didn't have any idea that it was associated with this revival that in the sense that we see it now, but that's exactly what it was. And, and our praying from, from 2013 and, and, and what had gone on before, of course, but then in 2013, we began to focus on a visitation from God and we're, we're seeing that. And other churches are seeing it. Now, like I said, this pastor wanted to know. He said, how did, you, how did you get that started in your church? That just tells me that, that, uh, that they must need to pray. He, he must recognize that they're not a praying church. Not, 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 you don't know who it is, so it wouldn't make any difference. You know, I can say this. But uh, uh, he, he obviously recognizes something needs to change. Well, I believe God will give them, they can use our plan or God can give them another. You know, the plan God gave me wasn't originally my plan. This is something that I, the Lord reminded me of something my pastor had done back in, 19, in the early 1970s. And the Lord said, do that. Back in the 1970s, our pastor would have once a year we would do this. We'd have a 10-day prayer meeting and uh, now back then, everybody was real into to praying, uh, you know, un, unstopped, you know, around the clock like a prayer chain, you know. And so he would have everybody come to the, everybody in the church wouldn't participate, but just like our church, a good, strong participation. And uh, everybody would, who would participate would come to the church and don't, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, contribute an hour of prayer a day for a week and everybody would come to the church and, and everybody would take their hour because we wanted it to be 24 hours. We, were, we thought that was important, you know, have it, you know, 24 hours. So for 24 hours, there was somebody down at the church. You know, the popular hours had a lot of people in church. <laughs> Two and three o'clock in the morning didn't have usually but one person. But somebody was there around the clock. There was at least one person. And, uh, and the Lord reminded me, he said the revival that existed in that church back then was because of that yearly, now see, after 10 days, we'd stop. And the church would sort of coast spiritually on, uh, on the reviving that it received during those 10 days. We, we would start that prayer meeting on a Wednesday, you know, the 10-day prayer meeting, we called it. We'd start it on Wednesday night and uh, following the, the midweek service and, and there people would stay over and begin to pray and then there was somebody in the church praying for, you know, for 10 days and it would be over on Saturday night. And it was, we always did it on Saturday night before Pentecost Sunday. And on Saturday night, everybody who had participated during the week, whatever your hour was, everybody gathered at the church about eight o'clock on, on Saturday night and everybody prayed for an hour and we would just have this tremendous breakout of the Holy Ghost. 
and it would, it would revive our church and it would last about a year. And then the next year we'd do it all over again. And the Lord reminded me of that. He said, that's what kept that church in revival. He said, do that in your church. I didn't know what was gonna happen. I thought, well, we'll do it for 10 days. And, 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 and then and when, when the 10 days were up, people caught the spirit of prayer. Amen. And it's, it has brought us to where we are today. Amen. Well, as much as we have seen God do in prayer, I don't think anybody that's been around here can deny that prayer has changed our church. Over seven years and in the last, this year, I think everybody would admit prayer has made a huge difference in our church. As much as we have seen to this day is, is not even close to what God can do and will do and wants to do. What we have seen in response to prayer is only a small part of what prayer can yet accomplish in our church. And not only in our church, but in churches all over the country and all over the world because people are catching hold of this. Glory to God. Hallelujah. I've been invited to go to another church in uh, the first week of November, uh, Pastor Angela and I are going to another church, a, a pastor that was in that, in that meeting. They've invited us to come out to their church out in Northern, nor, northern, yeah, northern California. And uh, it, why? Because people are hungry for revival. They're, they're hungry for what God is doing because they know if God will do it at impact, he'll do it anywhere. If God will do it one place, he'll do it another place. It's just contagious. The move of God is contagious. Revival is contagious. Hallelujah. Why? Because it bears witness with people. I mean, it's of God and people who know God instantly instantly connect with that. They say, that's it. Oh, hallelujah. And like I said, what he has done so far in our church and and so far in other churches uh, in response to prayer is only a little bit of what he wants to do, can do, will do. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.